70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. My name is Yuri, and I've been listening to KBS World Radio's Japanese program since 2020. I've not been able to visit Korea for three years now due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and KBS World Radio has been a bridge between me and Korea during that time. What I like the most about it is that you can get the latest information that's not even available on the Internet yet. I also enjoy the YouTube live streams that started last year as I can communicate with the hosts in real time. Congratulations on the evolution from shortwave radio all the way to YouTube. Happy 70th birthday and I'll look forward to more fun shows down the road. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It is Thursday, the 9th of March, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. The presidential office has announced that President Yoon Sang-yeol will visit Japan in a week's time for a summit with Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. Data released last month revealed that South Korea's fertility rate hit a new record low last year, despite efforts by the government. We'll delve into this issue for our in-depth today. And then coming up for Explore Korea, our travel contributor will tell us more about Tapgol Park in Seoul and its place in modern Korean history. We have all that and more in today's Korea 24. President Yoon Sang-yeol will visit Japan next week for a summit with Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. This comes on the heels of a controversial decision by the Yun government on compensating wartime forced labour victims. Our KBS World Radio news editor Koo Hee-jin joins us in the studio now to brief us on the visit as well as our other headlines of the day. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, jang So the presidential office released a statement saying that Yun and First Lady Kim Gani will embark on a two-day visit on March 16th. Can you give us more details? Well, the top office said it is coordinating with Tokyo to fine-tune a detailed itinerary and expressed hope that the visit will reinvigorate relations between the two neighbouring nations. It will be the first such standalone trip to Japan since former President Lee Myung-bak's tour in December 2011. Former President 
Moon Jae-in uh, visited Osaka in June 2019 to attend a G20 summit. This will be their first meeting between uh, Yoon and uh, Kishida in four months uh, since the summit in November last year in Cambodia. The two leaders will likely vi- uh, discuss Japan's export curbs against South Korea and a bilateral security agreement. The top office said the upcoming visit will resume exchanges between the leaders, uh, which have been in limbo for some 12 years and serve as an important milestone in the improvement of bilateral relations. And the announcement of Yoon's visit comes after the government said earlier this week that it plans to compensate wartime forced labour victims through a domestic foundation without contributions from the defending uh, uh, Japanese firms. The plaintiffs slammed the government's decision while the uh, uh, opposition blasted it as humiliating diplomacy. This news of a summit with Kishida comes a day after it was announced that President Yun would also be making a rare state visit to the US in April. I understand the presidential office also released further details about that. Can you elaborate? Well, presidential spokesperson Kim Un-hye told reporters at a briefing on Thursday that the summit will take place right after an official welcome ceremony on April 26th. This is an update on Yoon's planned uh, state visit to the US. Uh, the next day, President Yoon will reportedly uh, attend a luncheon hosted by US Vice President Kamala Harris and US Secretary of State Antony Blanchard. Of course, one of the key agenda items that will be discussed during his trip to Washington will be North Korea. On that note, the US Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, says the isolationist state is likely preparing to test a nuclear device to further its stated military modernization goals to facilitate, quote-unquote, tactical nuclear operations. She unveiled her agency's assessment that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un apparently has no intention of giving up his nuclear program. Can you tell us more? Well, the head of a U.S. intelligence agency said uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un sees nuclear weapons as a crucial means to guarantee his power as he believes the world will eventually accept the North as a nuclear state. At a Senate hearing on Wednesday, U.S. Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines presented the findings of the 2023 annual threat assessment. Let's listen to what she had to say. North Korea similarly remains a proliferation concern as it continues its efforts to steadily expand and enhance its nuclear and conventional capabilities targeting the United States and our allies periodically using aggressive and potentially destabilizing actions to reshape the regional security environment in its favor and to reinforce its status as a de facto nuclear power. The report noted that North Korea is likely prepare, uh, preparing a test, preparing to test a nuclear device to further its military modernization goals to facilitate tactical nuclear operations. While addressing the global changes the U.S. faces, uh, ranging from China and Russia to Iran and North Korea, the U.S. spy chief speculated that Chinese President Xi Jinping will press Taiwan on unification, undercut U.S. influence and drive away between Washington and its partners. Let's look at one more headline now, and in what can only be described as a stunning upset, Australia beat South Korea 8-7 in their opener at the World Baseball Classic tournament in Tokyo on Thursday. 
It may be painful, but can you walk us through what happened, Hee-jin? Starter Ko Young-pyo allowed two runs on four hits with four strikeouts in four and a third innings as the 2009 WBC runners-up struggled against the Aussies. The two Robbies, Perkins and Glendinning, both hit home runs with three runners on for Australia, while Yang Yi-ji batted a three-run home run for Korea. Team Korea will hope to improve its chances for progressing past the group stage when it faces two-time champions Japan on Friday. The two teams from Pool B, comprising South Korea, Japan, Australia, China and the Czech Republic, will advance to the single elimination bracket with the top two from the other three pools. Actually, let's squeeze in one more story. Uh, The government is seeking to lift the mask mandate currently in place for public transportation. Can you tell us more? Well, the Central Disaster and Safety Countermeasures Headquarters said on Thursday that the agency, together with experts, reviewed an end to the mandate in consideration of the quarantine trend following the first phase of an expanded easing of the rule that took effect on January 30th. The mandate was lifted for most locations nationwide except for high-risk facilities hospitals and on public transportation. Earlier, the government sought opinions from uh, the Disease Advisory Committee on the acceptability of suspending the mandate on public transit, considering the current pandemic situation. A majority of committee members reportedly gave a positive response, setting up the government to make a final decision and make an announcement as soon as next week. We'll leave it there for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. Last month, it was revealed that South Korea's fertility rate had dropped to a record low 0.78 last year. That's the lowest among OECD member countries for the eighth year in a row. And South Korea remains the only country with a fertility rate lower than one. Despite efforts by the government in recent years to address this situation, the number has continued to drop at an alarming pace. To discuss the situation and what can be done to address it, we have joining us in the studio today two guests... First, we have Professor Kim Joon from the KDI School of Public Policy and Management. Professor Kim, hello. Thank you for being on the show today. Hello. And we also welcome back a very familiar guest for our long-term listeners of the show. We have affiliate Professor Kim Byung-joo from the Hanguk University of Foreign Studies with us. Professor, it's good to see you again. Great to be back. Thanks. Okay, so last year's fertility rate of 0.78, it's quite shocking as it was down from an already low rate of 0.81 a year earlier. To put that figure into perspective, a fertility rate of 2.1 is needed to keep the country's population stable without immigration. So in other words, an average, each woman would need to have two children at least to keep the population stable. Currently in Korea, the number of children being born is less than one per woman. And it's the only country in the OECD to be doing so. With deaths now outpacing births since 2020 as well, it's been calculated that Korea's population could be halved by the end of the century. So, Professor Kim Joon, what are the ramifications of such a low fertility rate? Can you explain it for us? What will happen if this continues? So, as you mentioned, uh, 
total fertility rate below one means that the population decline is an imminent issue in South Korea. However, there is more serious issue uh, regarding low fertility more than uh, population decline. It's population aging. So imagine that life expectancy continues to grow and we will have fewer and fewer babies. This means that we will have relatively greater proportion of elderly population who are economically inactive Mm. compared to younger population who are active and have to support this uh, large proportion of elderly population. So um, in fact, the proportion of elderly population has increased dramatically in recent years in South Korea. So without an active government intervention at at the moment, this trend will place a huge strain on pension system, social security system, and healthcare system, as well as it could uh, spark a political conflict over the distribution of uh, scarce resources. Right, so the younger working population will have to support the older population who cannot work, essentially. Mm. Uh, It's been a remarkably fast decline. Professor Kim? Yeah, I guess uh, I'd like to add some numbers here, which is quite interesting indeed. Uh, Based on Professor Kim uh, Jong-un's notion and idea here, uh, some uh, numbers, like, for example, I look at the report that came out of the National Assembly Research uh, Center, and they were saying we by 2060, what will happen is with this current rate of population, we will see the GDP uh, being reduced by 5% by 2060. And uh, that's going to be driven by the reduction of the productive population being cut by uh, 10%. And also, uh, as a result of it, the national debt will increase by about 8%. So these numbers are pretty big indeed, and uh, much larger than what we would normally think. Uh, GDP cut by 5% is considerable indeed. So those are the numbers that we are bracing for at this point, and uh, I guess the whole nation is pretty desperate, searching for certain solutions. Right, so there is this situation looming ahead. If we take a look back first, though, the fertility rate, it's dropped at remarkably fast pace. Uh, The rate was high as 4.53 in the 1970s, but then dropped below 2 in the 1980s, and then below 1 in 2018, and now that is 0.78. So I believe that means uh, 1 in 5 women would not have children at all in average, uh, I think. So, uh, Professor Kim Jong, what is some of the reasons behind this phenomenon? So there are multiple reasons uh, for different stages of fertility decline. So first of all, when we reach sub-replacement level from 6 to 2.1, is because people were having, having this uh, ideational change that two kids is like the best practice. Mm. But when South Korea fell from 1 to, point, one, to, uh, two, to 1 to 1. 1.3 uh, in early 2000, it's because people were marrying, having at least one child, but they were not having additional child. Mm. And that was associated with a work-family conflict. So women are spending more and more time in the labor force, but they were unable to combine their labor force demands with um, additional kids. So they were hesitating or read rejecting uh, having additional child. But now we are talking about total fertility rate below one. Hmm. And that's not because people are having, like, people are marrying and having one child and not reject, rejecting additional child. It's because young people are rejecting marriage and childbearing altogether. So the fundamental reason for really low fertility in Korea at the moment is just rejection of marriage. Right, so all countries, all advanced countries, mm-hmm. they're seeing a declining uh, birth rate because of some of those re- reasons you mentioned. But here in Korea, it's especially acute because people are rejecting marriage altogether. Why is that uh, happening as well? 
So again, there are multiple reasons, but if I have to highlight one fundamental source uh, in this interview, I would say it's the gender issues. So um, if you look at fertility trends uh, among high-income countries, you will be able to divide these countries into two groups. One with a fertility rate above 1.3 level, and another country fertility rate below 1.3 level. And then this country with a relatively higher fertility rate tends to be Norway and Sweden and France. These countries are not necessarily wealthier countries. These countries are considered gender egalitarian, where work-family combination is quite easy for women. But if you look at the other country, which includes South Korea, Japan, and some of the Southern European countries, Spain and Italy, and these countries are relatively gender inegalitarian, where work mm. and family combination is quite challenging, and then female employment rate is low. So, um, yeah, it is gender issue. The gender issue-wise, I think in Korea, what we see that the fast rising, uh, you know, as Professor Kim Jong mentioned, the refusal uh, to get married. Uh, yeah, when we say gender issue, inequality of the, between the uh, two genders, uh, of course, but also I think over time, the dynamics behind it is also fast rise of women's status here in Korea. Uh, for instance, a recent New York Times pointed out that, uh, New York Times report pointed out that back in uh, 1980, which it, to me doesn't seem to be that long ago, but the, the post-secondary education uh, rate for women was only 6%. But now, after about, what, uh, 30, 40 years now, the, the rate is from 6%. It has increased to 90%. So women getting better educated and becoming more ambitious and um, more capable uh, to join the workforce and so on, uh, have resulted in uh, reluctance to get married as well. So uh, one would, you know, it's like a question of uh, glass half empty or half full. Uh, so what I'm saying is it ha also has to do with the fact that the water level in the glass has been rising really fast mm. from 6% to 99%, uh, 90%. Professor Kim Jun, I believe you wanted to say something there? Yeah, I mean... I wouldn't blame women's growing ambition or educational level as the key source of this uh, declining fertility rate. It's an um, unchanging work institution that is unable to incorporate changing demands of the workers. Mm. So I think it's a conflict between changing young people's life and demands and then the old rigid institution that's uh, unable to like, accommodate these new demands. Well, the government and previous governments, they failed to try and stop this decline in the fertility rate, despite billions of dollars being spent on initiatives and childcare subsidies. Uh, President Yun has expressed the need to tackle this issue as well. Just yesterday, he called for bold and sure measures for the low birth rate that can be, quote-unquote, felt by the people. Professor Kim Byung-ju, how do you assess the Yun administration's policies so far to address this issue? In assessing the policy of the current administration, we have to look back and, and you know, really be reminded of something that everyone knows, that is it's been almost close to two decades since Korea has been quote-unquote fighting against this trend altogether and Korean government has introduced like five-year plan ever since 2006, as many as three times, one after another and we know initially uh, some people have pointed out kind of, uh, uh, you know quite skeptically that you know, government was trying to hand out money to have more babies and so on. Hmm. Uh, now, 
What I know is, uh, Professor Kim Jong may uh, argue otherwise, but uh, what I know is last year when the new government was coming in, the, the, uh, the committee was, the transition committee was issuing different policy statements. And what I found rather refreshing was the fact that not only uh, this government uh, seemed determined last year to address wide scope of social issues that makes having children difficult. Together with that also, the idea, introduction of the idea that, that we need to, uh, we need adaptation. Sort of remind me of the climate change cooperation, you know, like global climate change cooperation. There are two pillars. One is mitigation, trying to slow down the increase of uh, greenhouse gas, hmm. but adaptation, working with the rising temperature and then rising water levels. And so uh, this government, when it was coming in last year, was introducing the idea for the need to to change the nation, transform the nation to live with declining population. Hmm. I don't think many ideas have been introduced since then, since last year, but the the overall direction of it, I think, is rather uh, good because I'm old enough for, to remember the panic during the 1970s in hmm. Korea. You know, like, uh, government was saying even two children is too many. You know, let's let's stop this this fast growth. So there was a panic then on an opposite direction. Now there's a panic on the other side here. So the more and more thinkers are introducing the idea, rather than getting panicked, let's get ready for the society becoming uh, aged and uh, with fewer population, smaller size of population. We got to find ways to live with it because. I guess the idea is uh, it's extremely difficult to find quick solution of having more babies altogether. So that part I'd like to evaluate in a more positive light in the sense that idea has been incorporated, introduced, a direction mm. has been set, even though I don't think much has been produced for the last uh, year period. Sure. Professor Kim Jong, what have you made of the administration's uh, overall direction in tackling this issue, coupled with the... Uh, policies that they've had implemented already right now? Um, so for now, it's difficult to conclude that whether this current administration has been successful or not successful in terms of obtaining low fertility rates, given we don't have empirical evidence yet. However, I believe that the current um, pronatal policy that is about expanding monetary support is not going to be effective just because it's not addressing young people's concerns. Right. For so, now, mm -hmm. if you have children, the government are giving quite a lot of uh, subsidies uh, mm -hmm. for uh, parents. Yeah, so if you ask these young people, why are you rejecting or why are you hesitating to get married? And there are multiple reasons. One is like overworking. So they're exhausted with their life and then they don't know whether they are um, sure about committing lifetime commitment to the children and then the partner. And then second one is, you know, the labor market is too uncertain. They cannot plan their life ahead and how can they plan having child, right? Which is a lifetime commitment. And then third one is gender issue. So men, what men um, believe expectation, like men's expectation about women and men, women's expectation about men are conflicting to each other. So these kind of concern is not going to be addressed by providing big money per month to right. babies, That's right? Right, right. Ping Man, when we say that, we mean about 100,000 won. That's about uh, 800 US dollars a month. That is what uh, 
young parents get at the moment from the Korean government, but the administration has promised more in the future as well, I believe. So then, Professor Kim Jong, what better solutions do you think are out there then? What do you think uh, the government should be looking to do more of? So since I've been mentioning about the gender issue, we definitely need a healthier discussion about the gender issues because a lot of the misunderstanding and conflict is produced by online discussion, which is uh, produced by few extremists. Mm. And then second is, I mentioned that uh, we definitely need some reform in the work institution. So nowadays, um, our conception about the the best worker or ideal worker is someone who is dedicated to work, who comes to the office from nine to five, and sometimes uh, to travel as demanded by the employer or sometimes do overnight work. But that's impossible to combine with family responsibilities. This kind of model about the ideal worker was designed during the Industrial Revolution, when the male breadwinning family was the premium dominant, but that's not the case, right? So nowadays, our work institution has to be changed in terms of um, being more flexible, and then obviously reducing working hours and so on. But if you you know that the current government is going actually against this direction, uh, so I'm quite concerned about this trend. Professor Kim Byung-ji, what do you make of Professor Kim Jong's? concerns there and what other ideas do you think are out there to try and address this issue? I think Professor Kim Jong laid out more of the uh, important points and the way I could contribute is I want to kind of like uh, not finishing the conversation but wrap up all these ideas together in the in the umbrella of the idea that could be called making life easier in this country altogether you know just living in this country making life easier altogether. That, that's why this population policy itself is so difficult, uh, so challenging for all of us. And in saying making life easier altogether, we know what we are talking about. That is making raising children less costly. And in doing so, what we need is addressing the issue of this high competition for education. People just preoccupied about the idea of having to send their children to, to Hagwons in the Chidong area. Uh, be- believing that uh, because they need to do it, because they need to send their children to Sky Universities. Believing that the Sky Universities label... Sick- uh, when um, we say Sky, we of course mean the uh, three top universities in South Korea. Seoul National University, uh, Korea, U- Co- yeah, Korea, Korea University, and Yonsei University. Yonsei University yes. Right. It's just labels. What I mean by that, uh, we use the label Sky University, but I'm saying the top universities, right? And then they do so believing that uh, getting the labels for universities will secure good jobs for their children. All these beliefs need to be addressed. And so in a way, uh, we have a lot of things to do here all together, but uh, that that will take time. And I think even I have um, had a conversation with policymakers saying that you got to encourage Korea's top corporations publicize their hiring policy, saying that they are not really fixated in hiring young people only because they have school labels. They're really looking into the capabilities of these children, their potentials and promises these days, these Korean corporations that are competitive globally. And this thinking is outdated. So we need to work on those kind of beliefs altogether. But what I'm saying is the scope is wide. And uh, so, you know, there will be efforts and wide, uh, you know, broad front areas altogether. Having said that, one important point to add is what this government has declared it's going to do, that is open up the immigration. We really need to do that. And I know personally international students who study here in Korea, getting educated here, 
who try hard to speak Korean language well, which they do well, many of them do well, and wanted to, want to live in this country, let them live here. Let them get their jobs. Uh, that's what we need. And this government had said it will set up you know, separate agencies and expand its capability to accept immigration and so all that. I think that's really necessary. And supporting immigration should become something patriotic. So we have to change our direction from nationalism to patriotism. We need to accept any people who are coming from any kind of ethnic origin, sure. as long as they are working hard for the country altogether, becoming a uh, legitimate citizen of this country. Professor Kim Jong, what do you make of some of those points that uh, Professor Kim Young Ju has mentioned there about uh, changing perhaps uh, this uh, over focusing on education uh, for good education, higher education in the Korean society, and also about using immigration to tackle this uh, population uh, crisis that uh, Korea faces at the moment? So we sometimes blame this educational fever and Korean people's mentality for low fertility and high competitiveness. But I think Korean people's attitudes and their mentality is shaped by the labor force, labor market instability. So people are not sure that even so in the past, graduating from the top university will secure lifelong employment, but that's not the case. So that makes people more ambitious or more enthusiastic about this um, uh, going into the top university. So I think that if we know that the labor market provides diverse opportunity for diverse pe- people from the diverse background, then we will naturally have uh, this reduced educational fever that could potentially contribute to the low fertility. Uh, in terms of immigration, it's a difficult issue because recent empirical evidence support that the people who migrated to South Korea actually have lower fertility than uh, they used to have in, back in their country. So imagine that these people are also facing a lot of economic issues and other mm. issues in South Korean society. So I'm not sh- so sure at the moment whether immigration will definitely boost uh, fertility in South Korea. I don't know. And one more point that Professor Kim Byung-ju mentioned, uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on uh, Professor Kim Jong is about the fact that the Union administration, they admitting that right now they can't tackle this issue, so they have to prepare for a super-age society, that we have to do more. Uh, what do you make on that? Uh, that at the moment, perhaps we should be spending less money on tackling low fertility, but perhaps spending more energy towards uh, preparing for that future? Oh, I'm not so sure. Yeah, I mean, preparing for the future, suggesting that we will face this pension issues? Pension issues and, and more than that. And it's, the, it's about the fact that uh, all the money we're spending at the moment to tackle the low birth rate, uh, it's at the moment, it's not working. So instead mm-hmm. of uh, obsessing over that, we should be uh, spending more energy in preparing for uh, better a, future, life. a, a better life uh, for mm-hmm. a society where it is going to be super aged in Korea. I agree with um, Professor Kim's argument because, as I mentioned, a lot of the reasons that young people are rejecting marriage is because of this instability and the difficulty in their in terms of their life. So I think that could be actually helping people to have more babies. But as a social scientist, I'm I cannot say for hundred percent that uh, it's going to increase fertility. Well, I think we've heard a diverse range of interpretations and solutions uh, today. There's certainly no clear answer or solution, it seems. But it's an issue that uh, this and future administrations will continue to tackle, they'll need to continue to tackle. So 
We're going to have to leave our discussion there. We've been speaking to Professor Kim Joon from the KDI School of Public Policy and Management and affiliate professor Kim Byung-ju from the Hanglin University of Foreign Studies. Thank you both for your time today. Thank, Thank you very much. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 12.82 points, or 0.53% on Thursday, to close the day at 2,419.09. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 4.73 points, or 0.58%, to close at 809.22. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 0.81 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,322.21. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online. And for that, our contributor Diane Yu has joined us in the studio now to bring us those stories. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jang. It's good to see you too. Okay, so what stories do you have for us today? First, we'll get the latest updates on a crime that was left unsolved for 16 years. Next, we'll go over how the number of applicants for entry-level public servant positions is continuously decreasing. Finally, we'll talk about which South Korean street food is gaining popularity in the United States. Okay, let's dive right into that first story then about a 16-year cold case. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us more? On Thursday morning, one of the suspects who allegedly murdered a taxi driver in the Namdong district of Incheon and stole money in 2007 made his first appearance as he was handed over to the prosecution. The police did not disclose the suspect's personal information to protect their defense rights. But what we do know is that he is a man in his 40s and was arrested on charges of robbery and murder. When asked by reporters whether he felt guilty after committing the crimes, he only said he was sorry. Okay, so can you take us back to the crime itself 16 years ago now? Mm -hmm. On July 1st, 2007, it is believed that two suspects stabbed and killed a taxi driver who at the time was 43 years old, then stole 60,001, which is about 46 US dollars in cash. They uh, they allegedly took uh, the taxi and drove it roughly three kilometers away to a residential area in Nam District, which is now called Bichuhor District. They then set the vehicle on fire and fled using a pre-prepared car. At the time of the incident, the police organized an investigation team to comb through 5,900 suspected vehicles registered in the metropolitan area, but were not able to find who committed the crime. So the Incheon Metropolitan Police Agency's investigation team dedicated to unsolved crimes took over the case in 2016. And it was this team that was able to make strides in the investigation, I presume. Exactly. The team found data on 92,000 vehicles that were the same type as the car that was used to flee. It was also discovered through CCTV footage near the scene that the vehicle had a white license plate. So the team interviewed about 2,400 people who own or owned vehicles that could be related to the incident. Using improved technology, the police also found a small trace of fingerprints on a car manual that was used to start the fire. In the process of, of comparing the fingerprints, a man was identified as a suspect. And on January 5th of this year, he was arrested and sent into custody. 
As the investigation continued, the police discovered that there was an accomplice who is the suspect we are talking about today and arrested him late last month. Okay, we await the trials, of course, but it looks like justice is being served despite it coming 16 years late and hopefully the family of the victim can look to get some closure soon as Mm -hmm. well. Let's uh, move on to our second story now. What do you have for us? Up until now, a civil servant has been one of the most sought-after jobs in Korea due to its stable working conditions, good perks, and work-life balance. However, the tables have turned and less people are applying to become one these days. This year, the competition rate for the Grade 9 Public Servants Open Recruitment Test recorded the lowest level in 31 years. For those who may not know, Grade 9 is an entry-level position. And according to the Ministry of Personnel Management on Wednesday, a total of 121,526 people applied for the test between the 9th and 11th of last month. However, only about 5,300 people can be selected for the position. Right. Our listeners might think that uh, 12,000 people competing for 5,300 openings is still a very high number. But this is a profession that has had an unusually high number of applicants each year. Mm -hmm. So how big of a drop are we talking about? The number of applicants decreased by around 44,000 compared to last year. The competition rate was about 23 to 1, the lowest since back in 1992 when it was 19 to 1. One notable change was the ratio of those in their 20s who took the exam as it has decreased considerably. This is surprising as these jobs were so popular at that at one time, the competition rate soared to 93 to 1. However, due to the rigid organizational culture and low wages, job preference for public servants, which were considered dream jobs, has declined. Mm. Also, the Ministry of Personnel Management analyzed that another factor led to the drop in, num- in numbers, and that was the abolition of the high high school subject elective system. Okay, can you explain that a bit more for us as well, that uh, high school subject elective system? Mm-hmm. So the system operated from 2013 to 2021, and it allowed students to choose high school subjects like social studies, science, and mathematics when taking the grade 9 exam. However, the system was abolished and specialized subjects such as public administration and administrative law became mandatory. This made it more difficult for graduates to apply for entry-level positions straight after high school. Right, I see. I guess they were looking to address the fact that there was so much competition for places. It looks like it has worked, but it's also Mm -hmm. uh, coupled with those other reasons that you mentioned earlier. But it still remains hugely competitive, 23 to 1. Yes. It's... uh, Still a highly desirable job for Mm -hmm. many in Korea. Okay, let's uh, move on to our last story. What do you have for us? So if you ask me what my favorite Korean food is, I would have to say tteokbokki without a doubt. (laughs) And it's not just me because the dish is one of the most popular street foods in Korea. Mm. The chewy rice cakes cooked in red spicy broth. Tteokbokki has gone global as well. The US news outlet NBC has recently released an article about the dish with the title, Tteokbokki Takeover. America's next food obsession is the ultimate Korean comfort food. And it (laughs) described how the dish is becoming popular in the U.S. as well. The news outlet went on to explain that tteokbokki is a comfort food that always stimulates reminiscence and nostalgia in second-generation Korean Americans. 
OK, this is interesting. Did the article explain the reason behind this uh, recent popularity hike? Right. So it reported that food hallyu or K-food, got its attention after K-pop swept across the world. More recently, BTS eating tteokbokki at a market in Seoul spread on social media, and Korea's beloved spicy dish emerged as a new trend. The dish is also the favorite food of ji Young, an, Amer- an Asian character in the American children's TV program Sesame Street. And I believe that tteokbokki is becoming more easily found over there in the U.S. as well, right? It is. The article explained that ready-made meal versions of tteokbokki are being spotted more and more at large wholesale marts. Online sales have skyrocketed as well. One example given was a global company that actually produces Korean products. The company started selling pre-packaged instant tteokbokki in 2021 through online distribution channels in the U.S. And last year, sales increased by a whopping 450%. It's interesting because in the past... Um... Uh, Doc had this reputation among foreigners for being uh, strange and unfamiliar to them, and they right. found it difficult to, to uh, enjoy. But mm-hmm. it seems like that's changing. Tteokbokki becoming the next big thing in Korean cuisine overseas, yes. it seems. Yes. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for today's career trending. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Next up, it's our weekly segment, Explore Korea, where we journey across the peninsula discovering more about the cultural, historical and travel highlights that the country has to offer. This week, it's our travel explorer and tour guide, Hannah Roberts, joining us in the studio to introduce us to some places to visit. Hannah, hello. It's great to see you again. Happy to see you too. Okay, so where are you taking us this week? Today, we are going to visit one of the most historically important spots in Seoul that could, I think, could be easily missed if you don't know about it. Mm. And that's Tapgol Park in Junggu, which is the central district of the city. Yes, uh, perhaps many of our listeners in this whole area would have walked past or driven past mm-hmm. uh, the Tapgol Park area, but might not have actually explored it. So then, what can you tell us about the park? So Tapgol Park is the first modern urban park to be built in Seoul, uh, having been constructed at the very end of the 1800s. Before then, the site was home to Wongaksa Temple, a Buddhist temple established in the 16th century. It's a long time ago. And uh, and it's now home to some relics from the temple um, that can be seen on display in the park, including the 10-storey Wongaksa Temple Stone Pagoda and some of the materials that we used to build the temple as well, like the foundation stones. Mm. The park is laid out around an octagonal pavilion in the centre and is lined with lots of trees and bushes. So, you know, it creates a, a nice, refreshing little, little green refuge in the middle of a very <laughs> built-up district now. Indeed, yes. If you've visited Insadong before, and actually we spoke about Insadong last time I was here. Yes, we did. Then you've probably seen Tapgol Park, just like you said, probably driven past it or walked past it. It's located on the corner of the intersection where Insadong meets Chongno, which is one of the biggest streets in the city. Lots of bus routes through there. Mm. Lots of subway stations go through there too. Sure. It's just a few minutes walk from Iksandong, Hanok village, and it's also close to the Cheonggyecheon. It's truly, you know, right in the centre of historical Seoul and the park itself has a very important history too. Okay, so can you expand on that bit a bit more for us as well? Why is Tapgol Park important in Korean history? So 
We've just passed March 1st, which is a national holiday here in Korea. Sure. On that day, we commemorate the beginning of the March 1st movement, which was the movement for Korean independence against Japan, which started in 1919. Mm. The Declaration for Independence was first read privately within a group of movement leaders, but it was then read publicly by a student to a crowd of people who had formed in, you guessed it, Taco Park. Right, right. That crowd then turned into a peaceful procession, and so Tapco Park is now famously the site of the first public protest against the Japanese occupation of Korea. As such, when you visit the park, you can see statues of important Korean patriotic figures, as well as a large relief statue of the declaration that was made that day. Okay, so you can see clearly that it is a very important location very for important. Korea's modern history. So it is uh, timely and relevant that we are talking about it uh, mm-hmm. today, just a week after that holiday. Uh, and the park has continued to be a place of importance, right? Yes, it's very much become a symbol of Korean independence and patriotism, but it's also become highly associated with the act of protest itself. Um, and so important demonstrations have frequently taken place at Tapgol Park throughout history. Mm. Some of the most important in recent history have been during the fight for democracy in the 1980s, during the authoritarian presidency of Chon Doo-hwan, protests for democracy were made, with one of the most significant being the June Democratic Uprising of 1987 that ultimately led to Chon Doo-hwan stepping down and allowing democratic elections to take place. However, a year previous, in 1986, the Grand Peace March for Democracy was held and designated its ending location as Tapgol Park. Mm. So it is very symbolic, as you said, Mm. and uh, you can, of course, uh, check out the park itself to try and get a feel for the history, but Mm -hmm. also understand that there's an exhibition covering the park's history and significance. Yes, it's at the Gongpyeong Historic Sites Museum in Seoul. Uh, There's currently an exhibition entitled Tapgol Park, the first urban park in Seoul, and is showcasing the role and meaning of the park throughout history. Beginning way back before the park existed, the exhibition lets us learn about the site as a Buddhist temple before becoming a public outdoor space and then through its journey into becoming a symbol of patriotism. Mm. We can see a clear timeline of significant events of Tapgol Park's history as well as learn about the construction and layout of the park. The exhibition presents also a, a lot of old photographs of the park and um, and its features and events that happened there, as well as showcasing, you know, real artefacts, including writings, paintings and flyers from significant moments in the story of of the park. Right, so there sounds like there's plenty to see. A lot to see, yeah. It's a really great chance to learn about the space in more depth, you know, alongside Realia to help us, you know, truly understand what we're seeing what we're reading about, what we're learning, you know. Mm. It should be noted that smaller items of information in the exhibition are written in Korean only, but all the important information that you need to know is displayed also in English. So even if you don't speak Korean, it's a really great place to go to and a great opportunity to learn about the history of the park and things that happen there. Right, and the fact that they have information in English shows uh, the care and attention that has gone into uh, the space. So it sounds like it is Mm. indeed a a worthwhile place to visit. So where is the uh, Gongpyeong Historic Sites Museum located? So the Gongpyeong Historic Sites Museum is on the first basement floor of the Centropolis building in Jongno district. And the exhibition is free to enter. The museum is open from 9am to 6pm, but it's closed every Monday. So 
best to keep that in mind when mm-hmm. you're planning to go. Sure. Uh, it's located just a minute's walk away from entrance 3-1 of Jonggak Station, which is on subway line one, the dark blue line. But the building does have a parking lot if you're coming by car. Okay, and finally, perhaps most importantly, how can we get to <laughs> Tapgol Park itself? So Tapgol Park is actually only about five to ten minutes walk from the museum where the exhibition is being held. So, you know, if you want to go to both of them, you can go in the same day. Mm. Quite handy. Uh, if you're going directly to the park, however, it's best to go via the subway to Jongno 3-ga station, either on line 5, which is the purple line, and then walk out of exit 5 south, Or you can go to line one, same station, Jongno 3-ga, line one, and walk west out of exit one. Mm. There are also lots of buses that run through the area. So I'd recommend looking up bus routes from wherever you're located and see if one is passing through. Um, I don't really recommend going by car because it can be difficult to park in the area. But if you have to, then there are parking lots a short walk away. Okay, so that was Tapgol Park and the Gongpyeong Historic Sites Museum, Hannah. Thank you for introducing us to those locations. We look forward to the next one. Take care and see you next time. See you soon. Did you enjoy this segment? You can discover more segments like this throughout the week on Korea 24. On Monday, we bring you news from the world of sports around the peninsula. Then on Tuesday, notable guests from various fields join us and give us insight into their lives and work. Are you a fan of books? Then tune in on Wednesday for Korea Book Club, where our book critic helps us unpack works by Korean authors or written on Korea. Go on an adventure with us every Thursday as we take a look at Korea's hidden gems with Explore Korea. And on Friday, listen to what our film critics have to say about the latest movie releases from both home and abroad. We have all that you need, all in one place, on Korea 24. It's time now for our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers. And for that, we have our staff editor, Richard Larkin, joining us in the studio. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you, too. OK, so what stories do you have for us today? Well, the weather has been getting warmer recently. It was even 20 degrees Celsius at one point this week. Mm. For me, it feels like summer. So I've been wearing <laughs> just a T-shirt and a thin coat. But it might still be too cold for people to enjoy the outdoors. And flowers and leaves on trees has not quite started to bloom again. So Yi Jin's article in the weekend section of the Korea Herald gives us information about a place we can go to comfortably look at spring flowers. And that is Hwasung Botanical Gardens. Okay, so it offers uh, flowers and the feeling of spring without uh, being exposed to the uh, still cold, (laughs) fairly cold air outside. Exactly. Uh, But uh, where can people find this garden then? It is located in Gyeonggi province, around 50 kilometres southwest of Seoul. And there is a lot to see. 580 species of plants, to be exact. Mm. Some plant species you can find there include rows of Sharon flowers and flame grass. If you want a place that is warm, the sun shines into a glass house located on the ground so visitors can take off their padded jackets and scarves. (laughs) The article does mention that the garden area is best to look at in March and early April. It also mentions that for children who may need something more energetic, there is a zip line and a slide. Okay, so it sounds like there's something for the whole family. Right. And if you're a fan of dramas, the, the hugely popular show Hotel de Luna, which starred Ayu, was actually filmed there. So you might be able to recognize it. It is open from 9am to 6pm every day, but the glass house is closed on Mondays. 
Entrance costs vary from 1,501 to 3,001. Well, thank you, Andy Career-Herald, for that recommendation. OK, let's uh, move on to our next story. What do you have for us? Next, we head to Park Ansel's article in the weekend section of the Korea Times. It's about the photographer Kim Jong-il. For decades, Kim has been on a mission to record Seoul's older areas before they are modernised with high-rise apartments and more. These areas are called moon villages. Okay, interesting. Uh, can you explain a bit more about what moon villages are exactly? Sure. The article mentions that these villages were communities that were built in high up, uh, were built high up on mountainsides, so they had a closer view of the moon. Mm. Refugees who poured in from North Korea after the country's division in 1945 and the Korean War resided there. But then things changed throughout the 1970s and 80s when huge construction projects began. The photographer even said that he knew transformation would happen, but he never imagined it would be so profound and life-altering. Indeed. So then why did the photographer decide to take part in this mission in the first place? He was inspired by a French photographer who dedicated his craft to documenting 19th century Paris before its modernization. The article goes into so much more detail about Kim and his works, and pictures are included so you can see what these moon villages looked like for itself. Yes, it is sad when these sorts of areas are uh, raised to the ground uh, mm. because obviously uh, p- things have to modernise and right. uh, buildings, which, especially older buildings which are perhaps uh, not as safe mm. uh, as they should be uh, they need renovating of course right. but it is a period of history that can be lost in time so it does seem like this uh, photographer is doing a service. And it, it gives it gives the city a bit of character right mm. when it's not quite all these like glass buildings and uh, modernised views. Sure but uh, with uh, times changing uh, mm. it is inevitable that, uh, that some of these places are lost to history right. as well but thankfully for these uh, for, thankfully due to this photographer we can uh, still have a record of them Okay, we'll wrap it up there for today's uh, Morning Edition preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And we wrap up our show there for today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then for more news, views and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. World Radio offers all you need to know on Korea through its various programs. Tune in to One Fine Day with Lena Park and join the K-pop diva for two fine hours every weekday. Are you into the latest K-pop tracks? Then K-pop Connection is your fix. Brian Ju brings you the best of K-pop and K-culture. On Korea 24, host Kwon Jang-ho helps listeners digest all the biggest stories coming out of South Korea. Keep up with what's happening on the peninsula by listening to Korea 24. Learn about Korean folktales on Mondays with Global Audiobook, Once Upon a Time in Korea. If you're a bookworm, don't miss Books on Demand, a program that introduces Korean literature to the global audience every Tuesday. Our Wednesday program, Korea Today and Tomorrow, provides news on the latest diplomatic developments in and around the Korean peninsula. Want to go deeper than K-pop? 
Sounds of Korea takes a closer look at various traditional music every Thursday. KBS World Radio is your go-to channel for all things Korea. Tune in 